We're looking today at the book of Judges, chapter 4. Judges, chapter 4. If you're here for the first time this week, this book of Judges is set just after the Exodus. So God's people have escaped from Egypt. They've got into the promised land, that land flowing with milk and honey. But all is not well. There's still all sorts of opposition in the land. And we've seen God's people are constantly turning away from him, getting themselves in trouble and needing to be rescued. It's one of our practices at Christ Church to preach through books of the Bible to make sure it's God's Holy Spirit who's setting the agenda for the church, speaking week by week. And all the Bible is God breathed. All the Bible are words of the Holy Spirit. So we're going to read from Judges 4. But actually this morning we'll be looking at chapters 4 and 5 because chapter 5 is a song all about the story that happens in chapter 4. But let's read chapter 4. Judges chapter 4. Let's hear the voice of the Holy Spirit. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harosh Hagoyim. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the people of Israel came to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kedesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord your God of Israel commanded you, go gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun, and I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. Barak said to her, If you will go with me, I will go, but if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will lead not to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh. And 10,000 men went up on his heels, and Deborah went up with him. Now Heber the Kenite had separated from the Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tents far away as the oak in Zananim, which is near Kadesh. When Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him, from Harosh Hagoyim to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him, and the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak. By the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army of Hashoth Hagoyim. All and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabin, the king of Hazor, and the house of Heber the Kenite. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me, do not be afraid. So he turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, please give me a little water to drink, for I'm thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. 
And he said to her, stand at the opening of the tent. And if anyone comes and asks you, is anyone here? Say no. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and a hammer in her hand. Then she went softly to him and drove the tent peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, Come, and I will show you the man who you're seeking. So he went into her tent, and there lay Sisera dead with the tent peg in his temple. So on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, and the people of Israel, before the people of Israel. And the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, the king of Canaan. These are the words of the Holy Spirit, but they are strange words, are they not? And a strange story. One of the things we'll see time and again in Judges is that the way God works and the story he tells are not quite as cosy, not quite as sort of U-rated in terms of films, perhaps not quite as spiritual as we might like. And yet all these stories are here to teach us something about the Lord God. He is the same yesterday and today and forever. The God we worship is the God, or the God of Judges 4, the God of Deborah and Barak and Jael. So what I want to do this morning is dive into the story, work out what's going on. It's sometimes hard to follow the action when it's just a reading, isn't it? And then see how does this show us the goodness, the glory, the majesty of God. And in particular, children, listen out for, for themes of freedom. When Jesus came 2,000 years ago, he said this, I tell you the truth, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now, a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you are free indeed. If the son sets you free, you are free indeed. That's going to be a kind of banner over our story today. But let's dive in and look at the details. Four characters. First of all, the slave master. Do you see him in verses one to three? The slave master. Uh, Verse one, the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Uh, Almost each of the stories in Judges that go round and round like a circle begin like that. The people of Israel forget God. And that little phrase, they did evil in the sight of the Lord, doesn't just mean that they did bad things, murder, stole, committed adultery. It means they turn to other gods. The evil is idolatry. It's one of the things that's true of human beings is that we can't stop worshipping. There are, I think, something like 60,000 students uh, in, in, in Leeds. Maybe a little bit more than that now. So at a guess, something like 15,000 new students turned up in the last week or two. How many of those students are religious? If you ask the newspapers, if you ask the kind of the surveyors, they tell you 1%, 2%. The answer is 100%. And that's not because of anything different about students. All human beings are worshippers. We are built to worship. We just can't help it. And so when we turn away from worshipping the God who made us, it's not that we stop worshipping. It's that we worship something else. Paul tells us this in Romans. It's not that we, we stop worshipping. It's we exchange worshipping of God to worship something else. And the result of that in verse two is slavery. The Lord sold them into the hand of this guy, Jabin, and his general, Sisera. The people of Israel are hard pressed. 
idol worship, turning away from the freedom of living as a son or a daughter of God, always leads to slavery. Why? Well, because we can't escape. We, we kid ourselves, we're free people. I'm following my own heart, I'm doing what I want, I'm the master of my own fate, but we're not. I remember my uh, first week at university. I think some of you heard me, heard me tell the story before, so bear with me. But my first week at university, um, we, we, I was in a hall, not in Leeds, different uni. I was in a hall and we had to watch this fire safety video and it, it turned out to be the block I was in that had been set on fire the year before. Something had exploded and they narrowly got out with their lives. And so it was a pretty terrifying video. Uh, we were all warned, it's quite old fashioned hall, all warned, as soon as the fire alarm goes, you get out of that door. Uh, lo and behold, two o'clock in the morning, the fire alarm went off. Okay, and I was out that door like grease lightning. <laughs> and they took a little roll call. And my friend who lived opposite, in the room opposite, I'll call her Celia, that wasn't her name. She wasn't there. So someone said, well, should we go and get her? And obviously, no, you can't go back into a building. It might be on fire. We waited, we waited, we waited. Turned out it was a false alarm. Eventually, after about 40 minutes, we, we went back in. And just then Celia came out, looking a million dollars, an absolute million dollars. She'd got up, she'd done her hair, makeup, got dressed immaculately. When we asked her, what are you, what are you doing? She said, I, I couldn't let anyone see me looking like I look like at two o'clock in the morning. Now, now there is someone, who, she, was, she was an absolutely lovely girl, but she was not free. She wasn't free. She was enslaved to the idol either of beauty, I guess, or opinion. What do other people think of me? And it's a harsh master. All idols are harsh, harsh masters. Again, uh, down there uh, in verse 3, Sisera uh, and Jael, they oppress the people of Israel. One version has it, vehemently tormented any other God, any other Lord of your life that is not the Lord Jesus is going to torment you ultimately because there is no grace, there's no mercy. You have to keep performing. Oh, we think we're breaking free, but actually we have to serve. The dad who just cannot leave the office, even though it's breaking his family because he's got to get the promotion. The boy who can no longer do real friendships with people because he's up all night watching all sorts on the internet. The girl who loses all her friends because she can't risk losing the boyfriend who becomes increasingly demanding of her. But it's too big a risk to be single. And so on she goes. We have to keep performing. We have to keep doing. That's how idols work. They are cruel masters. Thankfully, Judges 4 is going to be all about freedom and how we break free. But let's start with that slavery. What is it that torments you? What is it you feel you have to keep doing in order to be a valid person, a success? What is it that drives you? I must. Well, that's likely an idol that has crept into your life, a slave master, a Sisera or a Jabin. So first of all, the slave master. Then in verses 4 through 7, the singer. This is Deborah. Oh, we meet her in verse 4. Deborah, a prophetess. And she's a strange character, a surprising character. Every other judge in the book is going to be a man. And Deborah, well, the fact that she's a woman is really emphasised. 
Uh, if we translated verse 4 really literally, kind of, you might know the Old Testament's written in Hebrew. If you translate it really clunkily, just kind of every word, it literally says something like this. And Deborah, a woman, a prophetess, the woman of Lapidoth, she was judging Israel at this time. She is really nailing the fact that, that she is a woman. Now, at this stage, all the kind of uh, modern sensibilities go, ah, oh, right, okay, we need to talk about women in ministry and male and female gender roles and all the rest of it. And honestly, we're just not going to do that th- this morning to any depth. I don't think that's what the story of Deborah is about. I'm really happy to talk about it afterwards, but I don't want to get sort of sucked in too much uh, to those kind of modern debates. I'm just not sure that what the, the, the author of uh, Judges 4 was thinking about uh, or, or intends us to think about. I'm not sure ultimately it's what the Holy Spirit is, is concerned about in this story. Um, she's not a church leader, but she is a prophetess and is judging. You see that she, people come to her for judgment. She is a wise woman uh, in Israel. Interestingly, she's not described, as the other judges are, people like Ophniel and Samson and Jephthah and Gideon, she's not described as a, as a, as a, as a rescuer. And the, 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 the formula that begins most of these stories, which goes something like, and the Lord raised up a deliverer, is not applied to her. But she is there as the standout character in this story. She is the one above reproach. It is a surprise in what would have been a patriarchal society. But she, and as we'll see later, Jael, two women, are absolutely vital to God's work. So although the Bible doesn't conflate the two genders and say, look, you're just the same other than a bit of biology, it does call us at times to different roles in a way that modern society would want to scoff at and say is old-fashioned. At no point does the Bible say that one is greater than the other. We have different callings as men and women at times. But neither one is more significant for the purposes of God. And one of the striking things emphasised in this chapter is the way that God, through these two women, frees his people. So Deborah, the singer, she, in chapter 5, if you just cast cast your eyes over to it, is going to Sing all about what has happened, the great rescue. And we'll look at some of what she says there. So we'll hold her for now. The third character is Barak, the soldier. Okay, so we've got the slaver, the singer, the soldier. Verses uh, 8 through 16. Deborah, she she can see the problem, the enslavement under Jabin and Sisera, but she knows she's not going to lead the people into battle. Okay, God never calls women to lead armies into battle anywhere in the Bible. And so she sends for this guy Barak in verse 6. And tells him that, that God is going to use him to conquer all Jabin's army, all Sisera's army. He's to take these 10,000 troops up Mount Tabor and then head into to battle. Now, when we get to verse 8, do you see how Barak replies? I wonder what you think of this, verse 8. If you will go with me, he says, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. Some read that verse and say, look... Isn't Barak a wimp? And, and that may be right. I, I'm not sure on this. I mean, Jenny, what do you think? Some people read that verse and say, look, Barak's saying, look, I, okay, I'll do it. You know, I, 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 I can see if, you, if, if you're a prophetess, I, I have to do what God says. So I'll do it. But you've got to come with me. You've got to hold my hand. And therefore, in verse 9, they read Deborah's reply as kind of a little bit negative. Yes, I'll go with you. But the road on which you're going will not lead to your glory Instead, the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. They read that verse as a rebuke. Yeah, okay, I'll come with you. But because you've been a bit of a wimp, you won't get any glory. 
It's possible that's right. But personally, I think he's just saying, no, I want you to come with me. You're the prophetess. He's recognising her, her ministry. He's recognising that she is the, the walking, talking voice of God as things stand at that time. And so he says, I want you to come with me. In fact, he uses a very similar phrase that Moses uses when he says to God in, in the days of the Exodus, you must come with us. I will go if you come with us, Lord, but I'm not going until you're coming with us. In the book of Hebrews, Barak is listed as one of the heroes of the faith. And I suspect he's not doing anything too wrong here. At the end of the day, he's about to attack Sisera, who has 900 chariots. That's like having 900 kind of tanks ready to go against an army of peasants with pitchforks and spades. And so we head towards the battle. Uh, Deborah calls, Barak answers. And just as we think the action is about to happen, we get a really random verse. I wonder if one verse sort of jumped out of you as just totally out of place in the reading. Do you see verse 11? Barak calls out the tribes. They head off to Mount Tabor. Then verse 11, we get Heber the Kenite had separated from the Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and pitched his tent as far away as the oak in Zananim, which is near Kedesh. And then we get back into the battle. This... I don't know if you've ever seen the news and you see these reporters in the war zones, maybe someone in Ukraine at the moment, and they've got the helmet on and the, the flak jacket and they're carrying behind a wall and they're giving reports, you know, the, the Russians are attacking over here, over there and the, the cannons are firing and the, the tanks are over the left and they're ducking down the wall. And then halfway through the port, can you imagine the reporter saying, and by the way, uh, Jack Smith has just moved from Doncaster to, to Pontefract. I thought you'd want to know. <laughs> and then here comes the truth. It's just, it's, it's totally odd. But the Holy Spirit doesn't make mistakes in writing and God doesn't make mistakes in what he's doing. So keep that odd fact in your mind and on with the story. Uh, Verses 12 through 15, we get the battle. And ultimately, Barak charges down from Mount Tabor, down the hill, into the valley, the plains near the river Kidron. And it's a total rout. They win. It's 27-0 to Barak and Israel. Verse 15, God destroys this evil slave master oppressor, with the one little twist that Sisera escaped. You see, the commander escaped. The guy, the general, the five-star general with all the kind of medals and, and the smart uniform. His men are slaughtered, but he gets away. Uh, verse 17, he's on foot. He's lost his chariot, but off he goes. And that takes us to the last character in the story. Okay, we've had the slaver. We've had the singer. We've had the soldier. And finally, the slayer. In verses 17 to 23, the slayer. So there's wicked Sisera, who spent years abusing Israel. And he's run, and he gets to, well, lo and behold, he gets to the family whose home move we just read about. It's Heber the Kenite again, do you see? Verse 17. It's the same guy we had reported in verse 11. He gets there, but, but Heber, the, the father, the, the dad of the family, the kind of clan leader, he's not there, he's away. And so Jael, his wife, Jael's a woman, his wife says, oh, come in. Because her family, her husband, Heber, has made a peace treaty with this, this, this evil overlord. And she's a remarkable woman, a very remarkable woman. See what she does, verse 9, she says, come in. And he, he says, well, please can I have a drink? Come into my tent, she says. Give me some water, he says. And she says, no, no, have some milk. Okay, it's a hot day. He's just escaped a battle. Milk, even more, kind of makes you even more sleepy. 
And, and she tucks him in under a blanket, covers him, verse 19. And he says, stand at the door, and if anyone comes, say, I'm not here. She's been painted again, very like, much like a mother. Do you see it? There, there, little Cicero. Cicero's been made to look a fool. Little Cicero. Like you do with a baby at bedtime. Here's your milk. Here's your little blanket. And mummy's going to stand at the door in case any baddies come. Tell you about the monsters. Tell them to go away. And so Cicero, well, he thinks he's safe. But jail is some woman. She goes, she gets the tent, the mallet. It was the women's job, apparently, to put up the tents in those days. Gets the mallet, the tent peg, puts it on Cicero's head, and bang. See how it's described? I love verse 21. Well, I said I love it. <laughs> Sorry, that makes me sound very odd. <laughs> I love part of verse 21. She nails him to the floor. Verse 21, the temple, goes into the temple, that's his head, children. His head is crushed. And the peg goes right into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. The bit I love is the last little clause, last three words. Okay, in case of any of you aren't, aren't medically trained, so he died. <laughs> okay, peg through the head into the ground. Just in case you're wondering, he died. Now at this point, all sorts of people criticise, oh, what a horrible thing to do. What treachery. But the Bible doesn't take that line at all. And first of all, we've got to understand, this is basically Hitler she's, she's, she's killed. At the end of the song in Judges 5, it, really a horrible verse, uh, Judges 5, verse 30, Sisera's mum is kind of looking out saying, I want, is my son back from the battle? Okay, so this evil overlord's mum is saying, is he back? And, and, and people say, he's not back yet. And she sings in verse 30, and I, it, it's, it's just horrible, isn't it? Oh, I know what they'll be doing. They'll be finding and dividing the spoils, a womb or two for every man. That's what Sisera is like. Normally, he conquers people and gives a couple of women to each of his men. Don't worry, his mum says. That's what he's out doing. It is horrible. This sister is not some innocent victim. This is Hitler plus, plus, plus. And that's why Deborah, the prophetess, the, the walking, talking voice of God, well, calls her a blessed woman. In fact, that little, little phrase, uh, when Deborah uh, turns to, to talk about uh, jail in verse 24. Most blessed of women be jail. It's the same phrase that is picked up and applied to Mary, most blessed of women. Two most blessed women in the Bible Mary, the mother of Jesus, and jail, who hammers Sisera's head to the floor with a tent peg. She is a savior figure. She is the surprising savior at the end of the story. And then right at the end, Barak turns up, verse 22. Barak turns up. And Jael's words, come and see. And Caesar is dead and the victory is complete. Now, what on earth is that about? It's not necessarily what you expect on a Sunday morning at church, is it? Nice parable of Jesus, a nice psalm about God being our shepherd or something. Here we've got skulls being shattered with tent pegs into the floor. And he had as much the part of God's word as the Psalms, the Gospels, and the letters of the New Testament. I think it teaches us three things about God's salvation. As we wrap up, three things about God's salvation. Uh, it is, by the way, obviously God who is the ultimate saviour. We start by thinking it might be Deborah, because she's the first named. And then we realise she's not going to lead the army. She's not called the, the rescuer. Then we think it'll be Barak. But Barak's told, you're not going to be the one who conquers Sisera. Maybe the best candidate is Jael. But even she is never called a redeemer, a rescuer in this chapter. And if you look at verse 15, it makes clear who won the battle. Chapter 4, verse 15. 
the Lord routed Sisera. Or right at the end, verse 23, on that day, God subdued Jabin. So this is a story about the rescue of God. What does it tell us about God as rescuer? Three things. First of all, God's salvation. It looks ordinary, but it's actually supernatural. It looks ordinary, but it's actually supernatural. Or to turn it the other way around, when God acts supernaturally, very often it just looks ordinary. Go back to the battle. What would you see? Okay, you're a reporter, you're... I was going to say Kate Aidy, that dates me. She, she was a war reporter in the 90s. I don't know anyone nowadays. Anyway, you're the war reporter. Okay, what are you watching as this battle happens? Well, you're watching Barak run down the mountain and, and meet all these chariots in the plains. And then something happens, something we maybe didn't pick up from the, the reading, but it's made clear in the song afterwards. Look at chapter 5 and verse 4. Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the region of Edom, the earth trebled, the heavens dropped. Yes, the clouds dropped water. In other words, there was a torrential downfall, a thunderstorm. Why does that matter? We flick over to verses 20 and 21. From heaven, the stars fought. Their courses, they fought against Sisera. The torrent, Kishon, that's a river, swept them away. The ancient torrent, the torrent, Kishon. So in other words, what you would see is Sisera with all his battle tanks, his chariots, thinking, I'm going to mush these Israelites on the plains. And the stupid Israelites have come down from the mountains where they might stand a chance because the chariots can't get up there. Right, let's go and carve them down. You can imagine them kind of whipping the horses and galloping across the plains. And then the heavens open, the river floods, and the whole lot gets swept away. In other words, what you see is a thunderstorm and a river flooding. And it just looks lucky. It just looks natural. It does rain. Rivers do flood. But Deborah, the prophetess, who sees what's going on, knows what's going on. She says, no, this is God fighting. In verse 20, the heaven, from heaven, the stars fought. Their courses, they fought against Sisera. The stars and angels are often linked together in the Bible. It's like a spiritual war going on. In other words, and it is God who sent the rain. God's word, coming through Deborah, lets us know that what looked ordinary was actually supernatural. God coming to rescue. But you only know that with the word of God. And that is a pattern all the way through scripture. And it culminates with the great rescue of Jesus, doesn't it? What would you see if you were on a hillside just outside Jerusalem about 2,000 years ago? you would see a very ordinary-looking man. In fact, three ordinary-looking men, just Jewish men in their early 30s. You've seen this thousands of times before. You've seen Roman soldiers drag them up a hill, carrying wood on their back. You've seen them strapped to a stake, pulled up into the air, hammer and nails again through the arms. And an ordinary-looking, strip-naked man slowly dies so natural so ordinary that's what you'd see but what was actually going on what was actually going on was god had come to earth and become man what you were looking at was not just a jewish man but the creator of heaven and earth yahweh the one who sent the angels into battle the one who caused the 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 river to flood and the thunders to rumble that was him on the cross dying 
being punished for our sins so that we could be free, not facing punishment or condemnation anymore. But you wouldn't know that just by looking. You'd have to listen and hear the words. It looked very ordinary, but it was supernatural. And that is how God continues to act. When we meet to worship, worship is meeting with God. That is what worship is. We are meeting with God now. Imagine um, your next door neighbor overheard you this morning saying, I'm off to church. And you're saying to your, your, your kids or whatever, uh, we're going to meet with God. And the neighbor thinks, oh, meeting with God, that sounds, that sounds impressive. And so she sends her kids to watch. Okay, they kind of peek over the window, their little noses over the top. We want to see what happens when God comes to meet with people. And they watch and they go home and they tell mum. And she says, what was it like when, when God met with all his people? What would the kids say? Well, this first guy stood up and talked a bit, and then we sang. And then a guy picked up a hammer and a mirror and talked to some children. And then we sang again. And then another guy came back and he talked for even longer. Um, and then a bit later, they, they all ate a tiny bit of bread and a tiny cup of wine. It's not impressive, is it? And actually, depending on kind of what kind of experience you've had of church before, you might think, well, it's not very spiritual. That's not supernatural ministry. And yet this is how God works. When Jesus left earth, Sending the disciples out, he gave them two tools, as it were. He gave them two instructions. Go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey all I've commanded, and baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The word, and what are sometimes known as the sacraments, the signs, baptism, and the Lord's Supper. At the Last Supper, Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me, and talked about the Lord's Supper. These are the tools Jesus chose to bless his people. And how does that commission end? I will be with you always to the end of the age. You're hearing words from just a little mortal man. <laughs> but as much as the preacher week by week is faithful to scripture, you are hearing the Lord speak and he is doing good to you when you receive those words by faith. When, when the supper is passed out to you, Paul says we're having communion with Jesus. He says, I can't see it. Where's Jesus? I don't feel it. The bread tastes like bread. The wine tastes like wine. Yeah. But the word lets us know what's going on. Looks ordinary, but is supernatural. So don't go elsewhere chasing the supernatural in places God hasn't promised it. If he wants to do something totally extraordinary, if he wants to send Gabriel through the door with trumpets and an army of angels, he can do that. We're not putting God in a box. What we're doing is listening to where he says he will meet and how he says he will work. If he wants to do things differently sometimes, well, he's the Lord. Looks ordinary, but is supernatural. Secondly, it calls you to action. This great song afterwards, Deborah talks about the different tribes and they react in different ways to this, this saviour. Some of the tribes, if you look at verse 14 of chapter 5, Ephraim, for example. Ephraim, their route, they march down into the valley, following you, Benjamin, with your kinsmen. Uh, the princes of Ishka in verse 15 came. A bunch of tribes did really well. They got on board and joined God's project. But some of them not so much. Look at the end of verse 15. Among the clans of Reuben, they were great searchings of heart. Why did you sit still among the sheepfolds and hear the whistling for the flocks? We called you out to battle and Reuben was like, just, ooh, today? Oh, look, I would have loved to. But I, I am, a, I've got sheep and today's shearing day and I, I, hmm. Verse 17, Gilead stayed behind the Jordan and Dan, why did you stay with the ships? Dan, it's time to join God's great rescue. 
the tribe of Dan, come on. Dan's like, oh, mm, today's the day I sail. Really sorry, I've got sailing on Saturdays. I... <laughs> Asher, verse 17, sat at the coast of the sea, staying by his landings. On we could go. God's people are not united in joining his campaign. One of them, we don't even know who they are. Verse 23, Meros, curse Meros, says the angel of the Lord. Curse his inhabitants thoroughly, because they did not come to the help of the Lord, to the help of the Lord against the mighty. Meros, presumably some tribe or family or little town, no one knows who it was or where, or where they were. And that's kind of the point, that they come under the curse of God. And the curse is enacted, nothing about them. God's people are an army, ultimately. We're called to warfare, not physical warfare, just to be really clear. We're not called to go out and co- cause violence. But we are to go out with the good news of the gospel. We are to love one another. We are to serve faithfully the Lord Jesus as our master. And his salvation calls us to action. Who am I going to be like? Zebulun or Reuben? It might be little ways. There's, there's thousands of ways to serve in church. Thousands of ways. Some organised, some organised. Unorganised, sorry. As in personal, just things you do. But you find in churches very often that 10% of people are doing 90% of the work. And I'd love us to be a congregation where actually we're all serving one another. There's also a, a reason. I realise this over time. Well, I... I, I it's not my call to serve on the Sunday school rotor or, or look after the, the kids or, or putting out the chairs or on the coffee rotor or on the music. It's not for me to because I'm just a student. And then a bit later, we, we graduate and we start work. Well, I've got a busy job now. Students got all the time in the world. There is no one, but the students, by the way, there's no one who looks down their nose more at students than people who've just graduated. Okay? It's just, they are savage. Okay? Don't, don't hang out with graduates for about two or three years. Oh, students are so lazy. Like, like you were a student five minutes ago. Anyway, um, but I've got a job now, I'm busy, we should get the lazy students to, to serve. And then a bit, you get a bit older, I've got kids now. Kids are exhausted, I can't, I can't serve. And then, well, I'm, I'm, I'm old now, I can't. You've covered every area of life. God's call does call us to serve. But we serve, and here's the crucial thing I want to end on. We serve because we've been set free. This is not meant to be a massive guilt trip. Because guilt doesn't drive us. Remember that verse at the beginning? The son came to set us free. That's the last thing about this salvation. God's salvation sets us free. I remember as a student hearing a talk and the preacher said at the end, he told a story about a missionary looking at a picture of Jesus and the missionary imagined Jesus saying to him, Jesus was on the cross in the picture, all this I've done for you, what will you do for me? And that's what the preacher went for. He's done this for you, what are you going to do for him? And I remember thinking like, oh no, awful, I haven't done enough. And I just don't think that's how the Bible works. Massive guilt trips. Rather, what we need to do is come back to Jael's tent one more time and see how she's crushed the head of the enemy. Remember the first promise in the Bible, Genesis 3.15, is that one day Satan's head will be crushed. And this is a little picture of it. Sisera is a satanic figure and Jael crushes his head, but it points forward, the tent peg and the hammer of Jael point forward to the hammer and nails of Calvary, where Jesus is executed on the place of the skull, Golgotha. He is crushing Satan under his feet. Because he's bearing all our sins and all our condemnation and saying to us, I've done all this for you so you don't have to do anything to earn your place in my kingdom. Just trust me, it is free. I've come to set you free. And the more you see that you're free from the penalty, the punishment of your sin and guilt, the freer you'll be to serve, not trying to prove yourself to God, desperately hoping he'll accept you. Have I done enough? 
But no, no, I am accepted. I'm loved in all my failure, all my sin, all my doubt, all my stumbling. I'm loved and accepted as a son and daughter. And so I just want to try and serve you, Lord. And when I stumble and fail, I remember Calvary. I remember the nails, the pegs, the hammer. I'm free. Imagine a football player who gets on the pitch and he's also looking at the coach. Children, imagine, you know, gets on the pitch and he, am I playing right? He's looking at the coach's box, am I doing this right? Or an athlete, 100 metres race, pistol goes, he starts running, he thinks, am I doing this right? And turns around and starts, he's not going to run very well, play very well. Similarly, if we're always nervous, am I really, am I really all right with you, God? It just stunts our ability to serve. The more you see you're free, that he has done everything, the more free you'll be to serve. And if you're not a Christian, such good news. We're not telling you this morning to buck your ideas up and become good people like us. We're saying there is God who is willing to pay for all your sin, all your ignoring of him, all your lack of faith. He just says, come to me and you'll be forgiven. I will give you eternal life. Welcome, welcome, welcome. God's salvation sets us free. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray. Uh, that in your mercy you would increasingly uh, drive into our cloudy minds and our dull hearts that you in Jesus have done everything for us, that we are free, sons and daughters, free indeed. And we pray, therefore, that you would move us to serve you out of gladness, not out of fear or earning, but in the freedom that you made us for, the freedom and joy that you created us for. So forgive us again, we pray. And help us keep our eyes fixed on Calvary, where Jesus crushed the skull of the evil one and saved us to be his people. Bless us, we pray in his name. Amen.